Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. On today's show, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here for the Mayor's Town Hall. Also joined by Bernie Farber, chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. There was another shooting at a place of worship this past weekend. What can we, the public, and our politicians do to halt the rise of white supremacy and violence that we're seeing? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with today, it's the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. And as is our custom, we uh, will open the phone lines up in a couple of minutes. 905-645-3221, star 9900 is a toll-free number. And you can also reach us on email, bkelly at 900chml.com. And on Twitter, at CHML Bill Kelly. Your questions, your comments for the uh, Mayor of the City of Hamilton, uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger. We'll go to your calls and uh, your comments in a couple of minutes. Good morning. How are you doing? I am just great, thank you. Great weekend this uh, this weekend. Great soccer game on uh, on Saturday. It was uh, you know, a wonderful, wonderful weekend to kick off soccer in Hamilton. i got to tell you, I, I was impressed by the size of the crowd. I was impressed by the professionalism. And I, quietly, I, I was also impressed by the quality of play. All around, I think uh, they they have focused as they as they do in football now on the game experience, and uh, the game experience was as good as any game experience I've ever uh, participated in, both in the stands and uh, on the field. It was uh, top notch. Uh, they uh, they obviously got uh, you know CBC covering the uh, I think about ten games uh, over over the uh, over the season. And uh, seven, seven or eight franchises already signed up. So this is a you know privately owned uh, uh, league now, by, uh, organized and created by uh, Bob Young and, and you know the Tiger Cat team. Uh, and uh, they hope to have twelve additional franchises in place next year. So the, you know I think uh, I thought it was a very impressive effort. Well, we talked to Bob, of course, on uh, the show on Friday about this, and as he explained it, reminded us uh, when when he started this. This is all, of course, a part of a promise. You know, when we get yep. the new stadium, I'm going to get a soccer team. We yep. thought, well, what league? Who's going to? So we said, we'll start our own league. <laughs> But it was a league of one at that point. There was just right. Hamilton and nobody else. Yeah. And to Bob's credit and Scott Mitchell and a lot of other folks have worked on this, I mean, they've grown this thing already. And it's fascinating to see the the interest in this league, let alone in, in Forge FC. Yeah, and I, I think from a player perspective, uh, what a great opportunity for them to continue to nurture Canadian players, which is really what the, the yeah. league is all about. Is uh, you know, I think I think it was like 80% uh, Canadian talent, and they have a certain required uh, on-field time as well so that they can develop those. Uh, the, the next level of uh, soccer players, whether for the national team or for the future pros. So I see it as a, a great, uh, great opportunity for them and a great opportunity for the, the city of Hamilton fans to participate in, uh, in, in professional soccer. And we know that, uh, you know, every young boy and girl out there is playing soccer these days. Uh, hockey uh, seems to be declining some and soccer is on the rise. So uh, I think their timing is perfect. Well, the city's had to make some decisions about that. Uh, uh, I mean, there were, there was a period of time, I guess, about 10, 15 years ago, where we were actually converting baseball diamonds into soccer pitches because of the demand. Yep. And I, you could probably still do that. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, the, the closure of the, uh, the, the player's paradise, uh, you know, indoor soccer was an indicator of how popular soccer is because, you know, those folks were left scrambling to find another location. Fortunately, we have a number of other indoor locations that they can go to. And, and you know, few of them, a couple of them uh, have been proposed since. 
So uh, the popularity of the game is uh, is now reaching kind of worldwide status. Uh, Canada's kind of catching up on what the world has known for a long, long time. The, the beautiful game is now even more beautiful than Hamilton right now, and I think it's a wonderful thing. I th- it was a promise uh, based on the, uh, the the agreement that was put together between uh, ourselves and the Tiger Cats, and uh, took a little longer than anticipated, but uh, but they got it done. So I think it was very impressive. And of course, I'm sure you're just blown away by the fact that their their colors are orange and white, uh, same colors as. Your, your, yes, your my Dutch national team. heritage. Yeah, yes. so so I'm not at all disappointed. I don't think that's why they did it, but uh, it's a, <laughs> it's a cool color, and you know what, a great name. Uh, you know, Forge uh, Forge FC kind of rel- you know kind of reflects on what Hamilton uh, was at one time, the major steelmaker, fabricator, industrialist uh, in the country. We're not that anymore, but uh, certainly it's still an element that's very important in our city, and I think they've hit the right note. Well, good luck to them uh, going forward. It was a great kickoff and just a fabulous start to it. And there were a lot of people, I think, that were going there on Saturday just to kind of sample and see what's this going to be like. But now the hardcore fans were there, as you noticed, you know, the ones that are singing and pounding on the drum all through the game. I don't even know what songs they're singing, but they all seem to, there's like two thousand of them all sitting in one corner there and they all seem to know what the, each other were doing well and they they had a similar crew for the uh, the york team yeah. as well so they uh they've they've obviously taken the uh, the same path as uh, as toronto fc in that league where uh, you know they're generating uh, enthusiasm and i think that's a, that's a great thing and you know the crowd that part of the crowd was very lively but the rest of the crowd was very into it especially when you know things were close and there was a near a near goal or a goal and uh, you know the place really went uh, went a little crazy so i think it was fabulous anyway if you didn't go on saturday shame on you but uh, pick up another game cuz you may i think may the uh, early may may the 7th i think is the next game yeah, so yeah uh, they're on the east coast uh, yep. for the next game yep. anyway uh, let's let's get down to business here. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about first of all the Red Hill. Uh, we've it's been in the news lately, as most of us are aware. Yeah. Uh, and council has uh, at one point a couple of weeks ago made some decisions about exactly what they want to do to address this. But there is going to be some side effects to this. Well, we're gonna we're gonna replace the uh, the road surface. That's been in the in the works for quite some time. But uh, we've now advanced that relative to the whole uh, you know asphalt issue. Uh, so uh, so the Red Hill Valley Parkway. People will need to know sometime uh, you know sometime in late May early June. Will will be closed in uh, in one direction for three weeks, and then uh, and then opened up, and then in the other direction for three weeks to to resurface the entire surface of the road, including adding uh, guardrails and uh, you know brighter lines and you know more safety issues. So people can expect for three weeks going southbound. Firstly. It will be closed, entirely closed, and so they're going to have to find an alternate route. The, the theory on that is rather than having it take months and months and months, to, you do little chunks at a time, just close the road down, get the work done, and then get it back into operation as quickly as possible. So six weeks of, uh, of closure on one side and then closure on the other side, and then hopefully we'll have uh, you know a, a, a f- as fine a road as we've had in the past. Uh, and it's going to cause some hassles. I mean, I can remember, I guess it was about eight or nine years ago when they did the, the link. Yeah. And uh, in subsequent weeks, uh, they closed it to- totally in one direction. or the uh, East-west traffic on the mountain was just a, a nightmare. Uh, just about every east-west road. I mean, from Concession Street on the Brow all the way up to, to, to Rymel Road and beyond. Uh, it was just insane. It was all bumper to bumper and gridlock. So it's it's, it's, it's going to be a bit of a hassle. It's kind of turning it back to uh, when we didn't have the link or the expressway at all, and you know the traffic was on the local roads. So it was on Lime Ridge and it was on Stone Church and on Rymel. And I expect now, if the you know southbound is closed, that Mud Street and Paramount and Centennial Parkway will get a lot more traffic. 
people are going to have to map out and plan for, you know, an alternate route to where they're going. If they're going to Toronto, then they're going to have to take the uh, Centennial Parkway location or travel, uh, you know, to the, the western end of the city and take the 403 uh, entrance. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, alternatives will have to be found, but there's only one way to do this. And uh, I think I, I agree with our staff that the best way is c- shut it down, get it all done as quickly as possible, and then get it back into operation. So three weeks is, uh, it, it sounds like an awfully long time, but it's really a blip in the radar. Uh, anyway, forewarned is forearmed. Uh, yep. Make some plans and uh, be patient because it's uh, it's something that absolutely has to be done. People, people need to watch the uh, the community papers, the news. Uh, there'll be a lot of communications and advertising, I'm sure, on CHML and other places to let people know what's happening, so we're not catching anybody by surprise. And that'll be an ongoing process through the entire uh, through through the entire redevelopment of the road. Uh, while we're on the topic of the Red Hill, mm-hmm. uh, one of the other decisions, of course, was to 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 follow through with this judicial review. Where is that? What's the status of that? Well, we're waiting. Uh, so we, we uh, approved the terms of reference uh, last council meeting, uh, which really kind of defines what the scope of the investigation uh, should be. And uh, we're waiting for the uh, the court system to appoint a judge. And uh, the moment that happens, then they can, uh, they're can they up and running and can make some decisions. This is not going to be a short, quick, easy process. This is going to take a year or more. Um, uh, the uh, the Judicial, the, the Superior Court judge, whoever that might be, has uh, certainly authority to uh, appoint different people to uh, to help him do his work. And uh, then they need a location to do the hearings. And uh, so it'll be many, many months before this even gets up and running. And then when it does, it'll be many months per, before they come to some sort of conclusion at the end of the day. So I, I would I would anticipate a year, maybe even a year and a half before we come to any kind of final conclusion. Does uh, sticker shock set in here when they told you how much this might cost? Yeah, you know what? Uh, you know, the cost for transparency in this case is pretty high. I'm hoping that uh, the, 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 the scope of this is narrow enough that, uh, you know, it won't become, a, you know, a witch hunt on, on every category you could possibly imagine. I mean, this is literally about a road and the the surface of the road and a report that uh, that didn't uh, surface and, uh, and, and trying to define as to why that happened and how we can prevent it from happening again. So I, I hope that the scope is, uh, you know, uh, stays narrow and that they can focus on those issues and hopefully they can get it done quicker than a year and a year and a half. And, and uh, maybe... Just a, a little stronger than maybe the Mueller report was too. We waited so long for well, that. Wasn't too. that a, it wasn't that a fascinating blase? Where you come, you come out of it with uh, with kind of a non-answer. Uh, you know, yes, we think some something's happened, but we don't think we need to do anything about it, which was really kind of an odd uh, odd conclusion. But you know, there's more to be had there, I'm sure. We'll sell uh, 905-645-3221 is our number. Star 9900, a toll-free number. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. We're going to go to your calls in uh, just a couple of minutes. I, I got a number of other things I want to get to as well, but uh, there were a few things you discussed at the council meeting last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them about when council meetings are going to happen from here on in. Uh, now, that has been set, settled at a committee level, but it still has to go to the greater council. Right. Uh, the motion at this stage, as I understand it, is to have the city council meetings at uh, starting at 9.30 in the morning instead of, five, what, at 5.30 in the afternoon? Right, five, 5 o'clock normally we start these days. used to be 7 o'clock, as you recall, oh, yeah. and, uh, back, back in the day. Uh, you know, and the theory uh, for some is, and I think there's still a, a debate going on. I'm not sure if it passes at the end of the day. I think some some are against it, some are for it. Uh, you know, one of one of the rationales around that is we're now live streaming everything, so people can watch this at any time uh, of the day or 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 later and after if they if they want to. So if they want to tune in, they can tune in any old time. Uh, the challenge, though, is that when we're doing delegations like uh, you know honoring 
particular, you know, sports teams or someone in the community, you know, and often we do that uh, ahead of council. Uh, that's a little more difficult to do during the day than it would be in the evening. And some believe that people uh, still want to attend. Now, I can tell you, rarely do we get you know, a lot of people attending the regular council meetings, unless there's a major, major issue on uh, nobody's there but uh, the usual cast of characters. And so, um, you know, live streaming this thing and then, uh, you know, starting meetings during the daytime is not a terrible idea. Uh, we'll see what council wants to do with it at the end of the day. Is there a precedent for this? I know Toronto has morning meetings, but many, I mean, their, their agenda is about as big as, you know, yeah. a seven, 800 pages, it looks like sometimes. And some of those meetings go on for two or three days. Yeah, I think many, many communities now are starting to re- doing their meetings daytime. So this is not, uh, not a trend that we're creating here. We're, we're kind of lagging behind, actually. So we haven't really made a change in a long, long time, other than the time. So, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a worthy discussion to have, a worthy thing to look at in terms of uh, whether it's viable or not. And, you know, it frees up a lot of uh, staff time. It frees up a lot of uh, st- time that, uh, you know, members of council have to hang in longer than they, they might need to and they can go to other things. So uh, it may very well be a good idea to give it a try. I, I would say pilot this thing. Let's, let's try it for half a year, see how it works out, see what the response is, and then, uh, you know, we'll go from there. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. And uh, we'll do, let's squeeze one call in here before we have to go to break in just a couple of minutes. Uh, oh, by the way, emails as well, bkelly900chml.com and on Twitter at chml Bill Kelly with questions and comments. Uh, Vic, you're first up today. How are you this morning, Vic? Good morning. How are you? Great, thank you. Go ahead for the mayor. Yes, Mr. Mayor, uh, I've been in construction for 50 years. Uh, 18 of them was on a big asphalt crew. Okay, you have binder, that's the road base, and then you have topping, that's uh, HM3, uh, HM3 high stability. Uh, no matter what asphalt you put down there, it's not going to stop anything. That's a total waste of money. You take a look at the uh, 401, there's accidents there every day, every second day, and that's a straightaway, more or less, and flat ground. And you don't see them jumping the gun because the public say, oh, well, we need new asphalt there. You don't need new asphalt. You need to educate the drivers, uh, and a lot of it is to do with uh, lack of uh, maintenance of their vehicles. If all your brakes aren't working right, you hit your brakes, three of them grab, one don't, so it pulls you all over the road. If it's out of alignment, it's all over the road. Uh, Cell phones, too fast going down a hill. Uh, It's all this. It's just a total waste of money. Which, right. is, which is the resurfacing the road or the judicial? Resurfacing the road. Okay. It's just a total waste. There's nothing wrong with that road. I drive it a lot. Uh, you got to go by conditions when it's snowy, when of it's course. rainy. You don't go down a hill uh, 110 mile an hour when it's raining out or when it's snowing out. Where do you think you're going to go when you come to a bend? You're not going to be turning. You're going straight through. Okay, Vic, I'm going to let you go and let you listen to the uh, reply in the radio. we only got a little bit of time left before we have to go to break. Go ahead, Mr. Mayor. So, so I thank Vic for those comments. I mean, uh, he, in part, he's right that, uh, you know, you have to drive relative to the road conditions out there, and that certainly has been a, a factor in some of the calamities that have happened there. But, uh, you know, the road needs to be surfaced anyway. So it's on a, it was on a resurfacing schedule. Uh, it was going to start maybe six months later. I think we just moved it up into the spring. And so uh, it was part of the regular, uh, you know, repair and replacement of the road surface that, uh, that needs to happen. So I, I, I don't argue against our, our staff saying that, uh, you know, the road now needs to be, uh, you know, revamped. So it'll be uh, stripped down and then a new layer of asphalt put on top. And hopefully we'll, we'll have uh, well-tested 
uh, asphalt that will allow for the, uh, the, uh, the the slipperiness that some have indicated uh, might have been a factor to not not exist. But safe safe driving and safe driving conditions ought to be considered every time you get on a road. All right. I'm sure we'll have more questions about that, too, but let's do a short break. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, right back to the phone calls. And uh, well, well, I was going to talk about the Red Hill, but we'll do that in just a couple of minutes. Dave, thanks for holding on through the news. How are you doing this morning? Very good. Thank you. How are you? Good. Go ahead for the mayor. Uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, I live on the West Mountain uh, in Bendemere on Bendemere Avenue. Yep. Um, I know we've all had issues with Mohawk College student parking. Mm-hmm. I am now being expected to, and as have had to for the last year and a half, to buy permits to park on my own street. Yeah. I uh, will not do that as a taxpayer, and I'm now being ticketed, or I have, have had tickets for my son, visiting relatives, and other people. Why am I being charged to park on my own street? Yeah, difficult, uh, difficult issue. Uh, uh, so we, we have these same problems happening in and around uh, McMaster University and, uh, of, of course, Mohawk College to a sli- slightly lesser degree around Redeemer. They tend to have their, a, a lot of parking there. And uh, the challenge is that we have, uh, you know, a lot of kids actually parking and taking up spaces uh, on, on residential streets. So we have requests from likely from your neighbors to say, let's find a way of resolving this so that we can still have parking available for us. And so I, uh, is a difficult problem. I, I, I can appreciate your frustration. Be happy to look into it in terms of what's going on there specifically on Bendemir. Uh, I know the area, uh, you know, a little Buchanan Park area. That, uh, that's certainly a lovely area, and it's uh, unfortunate that uh, that kind of enforced kind of parking regime has to be uh, implemented there. Yeah. But uh, I, don't, I don't disagree with you. I would, I would, uh, I would have the same frustration, but I, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that, uh, that this was requested by you know, some of your neighbors to, to, to quell the, uh, the Mohawk student parking problem in their neighborhood and on their street to I, allow I, for additional I, parking. I agree with that. But yep. so the last, last time it happened, we caught the guy out there, the parking authority, giving us a ticket. He said, well, just go downtown. I said, it's our, he could see my sister-in-law coming out to the street. Yeah. So why are we, and we had no luck fighting that at all. We had to pay the ticket. Right. So uh, why are we, why do you not just give us, is there not a quick fix? Why do you not just give us permits? How, how can I control how many, many people come during the school year? Actually, it's all year round. Right. Come and visit at my house and you expect me to yeah. purchase a permit? And have to take it out at a regular basis. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't disagree with you on that. I, you know, what's what? What do they charge you for that? What's what's the number? I, I believe the ticket, the last ticket, was sixty-five dollars. No, but for the permit. Oh, for the permit, I, it's over a hundred dollars. Is that right? Yes. Well, I'm not aware of that, so I, I wouldn't disagree with you. No, no, they're probably following the standard permit policy that, that applies, you know, on some of the residential streets downtown, for instance, and, you know, some of the high-density uh, locations. There's a lot of permit parking that, that, that happens in those streets. Uh, I would say I wouldn't disagree with you on the notion that, uh, you, you, you know, you shouldn't have to pay an additional amount of money to... Uh, to get a permit on a on, on a location where you should be allowed to park in the first place, so I uh, I don't really, disagree. It's really it's really causing me now yep. to go and direct all of my relatives to go park in front of somebody else's house on another street and yep. walk all the way to my house and pester them now. Yeah, so you're starting the whole circle from the students going further. I have no answer how to correct it for students, but you should be at least giving me passes that I can park vehicles in front of my house. Be happy to look into that for you, sir. I mean, if you uh, give me a give me a call or, or send me an okay. email, nine zero five. 
Five four six four two zero zero. It just had a mental blank there for a second. Yeah. yeah, give us a call. Give us some details. Happy to look into it for you, and uh, and also pass it along to the local councillor. I think it's uh, Councillor Danko at this point. Right. Uh, and you know, get him involved and uh, see if we can find some resolution for you. I will definitely follow up with you. Great. On that. Appreciate, appreciate you about. mentioning that. I you okay. know wasn't aware of the the, the permit requirement for your, for actual residents, yep. so I appreciate yep. that. Okay, appreciate it. Thank Thank, you. Thanks Thank for the you. call, Dave. Appreciate that. I, I would venture to say that if you look deep enough into this, you're going to find that there's probably a petition at some point. Because yep. uh, we get a lot of this stuff, too. I mean, when I was on council, around the, what well, was the Henderson Hospital, then Jurovinsky now, they have permit parking on all those little side streets off That's Concession right. Street because people tend to park there and stay. Keep, a staff, you know, they want to stay there all day. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, a, it's an attempt to free up parking for people that live there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I don't disagree with them that it's, it's kind of egregious when you have... Uh, a, you know, a quiet residential neighborhood with a lot of street space, and all of a sudden it's all taken up by by you know others others that are going to the college, and then you're you're the one that has to pay to actually resolve that issue. Uh, that, that sounds a little rich to me, but I, I you know it, uh, it it it's an unfortunate problem, but uh, I'm I'm sure there's no easy resolution here. Well, and, and that's the cost, and that's the, the element to it. But we got into it, and I, I, I guess all councils at one point or another have had to do this because there's going to be complaints about these sorts of things, as you say, around uh, learn, learning institutions or places like that. Uh, but the, the the long and short of it is uh, we, if you own a house, you do not own the street in front of the house. No, for sure. It's, uh, it's, not, your, it's not an inherent right, but you know what? There's a reasonable expectation that, you know, most people uh, see, see the street as part of their neighborhood. And, you know, I, I, I get visitors and guests. I'd like to at least have them, you know, be able to park somewhere close to where I'm hosting them or whatever. So that's a, that's a reasonable expectation. But in some areas, that, that's problematic just because of the sheer volume of other uses that are, uh, that are occupying that space. But you're 100% right. Uh, you don't own the street. Uh, we collectively own those streets. Uh, you know, all, all the citizens do. So everyone has rights, rights to, to get access to them. It, it gets a little silly sometimes, too. I mean, sometimes people are putting lawn chairs on the parking spaces there just to make sure nobody else parks there. I've and, seen, that, and then you can't do that either, by the I've way. I've seen, you know, people uh, purchase the orange cones and, uh, yeah. you know, put them out. And, uh, you know, I mean, for, for some people that works, in fact. But uh, it's probably not legitimate and, and probably will be challenged by somebody. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900. Your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger on the Mayor's Town Hall, the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. John, you're next on the program. Good morning. Hey, how you doing? Good morning, John. I want to talk about uh, Mr. Trudeau, homelessness mm-hmm. and poverty. Mm-hmm. We're having a meeting today. He comes to town Friday, Good Friday, start feeding fish and chips to the homeless and everything else, which is a good idea. Right. But I would be embarrassed if I'm the Prime Minister of Canada getting a food line feeding people, not even bringing a check so you could have a photo op with them. Mm-hmm. We do. It's election year. I haven't seen them in Hamilton with any big checks, Bob Bettina or Tassie. When are we? You keep saying you're talking to them. We talk to them. We talk to them. I do not. The last time was LRT. I do not see any checks, photo ops for people of Hamilton. I like so, your opinion. All right, I'll let you go, John. I'll let the mayor answer that on the so, air. So, uh, John, I, I I can tell you that uh, there has been a check, and the uh, they actually doubled up on the. Uh, on the ex- uh, the uh, gas tax, uh, so we, you know we're we're accustomed to getting about thirty two million dollars annually on the gas tax side, and they've doubled that up this year to uh, provide additional resources for uh, remediation or housing or homelessness, whatever we want to use it for. 
Uh, we've also had uh, you know, a s- considerable amount of money on the transit side, so lots of transit funding has come through, and we're, uh, we're employing that uh, as we speak. And uh, I expect before too long that uh, some housing funding will be delivered in this election year. Now, they, they've made these promises a number of times, and I can tell you that uh, we are anxious to see the national housing strategy actually implemented. Uh, some additional dollars came from the province through the, uh, from the federal government and through the province. There was some $29 million that came through the province. And, you know, you know that uh, the province and the federal government have to work in partnership on some of these funding issues because of the constitutional issues. So sometimes it doesn't look like federal funding, but it flows through the province. So they actually take credit for it. So I, I, to be fair to the, the feds, I think they've delivered a fair bit to Hamilton. Um, you know, have they, have they made a lot of promises that uh, they have yet to deliver on? Yeah, probably, but uh, it, we've not been devoid on, uh, on resources coming to Hamilton. I think they've done a pretty good job. Part of it's, it's a complaint, I guess, just about every city has here, and you're, you're absolutely right about the rollout of the national ha- housing strategy. I mean, the minister's been in town a couple of times, uh, and yep. they keep saying it's on its way, it's on its way, but... It's, it's got to be frustrating. Uh, it is. I mean, we, we, we've got our $50 million in place. The whole idea about that $50 million was to be able to leverage uh, additional dollars from the federal and provincial governments. Uh, I expect it will flow this year. I mean, it is an election year, so maybe it's strategically they're, they're mapping it out that way. But the, the homelessness issue is frustrating. And I, I can tell you, I, I hear it from a lot of people on a day-to-day basis, that the frustration of seeing people on the street uh, sleeping on, uh, you know, the benches and, uh, you know, panhandling at street corners where there's a lot of traffic. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of these folks uh, don't want to be helped. Uh, you know, we have, we have resources for them. We have special police teams and special city staff that are engaging with these folks to try and get them landed in a home or get them into the Y or some, t- some sort of a temporary housing arrangement to get them stabilized. And in many instances, these people won't go. Uh, you know, sometimes they have mental health issues or, uh, you know, they're, they're just uh, adamant that uh, they can look after themselves, don't bother me. Uh, and these are not folks that we can just pick up and arrest. Uh, you know, they have rights to be, uh, you know, wherever they are. They don't have rights to litter the place, but they, don't, they have rights to stand on street corners like everyone else. And so it's not a matter of picking them up and, and, and dropping them somewhere else uh, and creating that problem somewhere else. So it's a really difficult problem. Uh, but we are making some great strides. I mean, homelessness has gone down. Uh, the poverty issues have reduced some. And uh, we have more people housed today than we had, have had in the past. So we're making some progress. And uh, it's, it's worth repeating, of course, about the city's commitment, too, for uh, money for, uh, for affordable housing, too. Uh, some $50 million, which is a, uh, it's a, maybe just only making a dent, but, I mean, it's a pretty big dent. Well, it's a, it's a good commitment. Uh, it, it has inspired, uh, I, I think, upwards of about nine different uh, affordable housing projects that otherwise would not have happened. Uh, you know, the additional dollars, we end up, you know, waiving the development charges on their behalf or providing uh, some ups, upfront study fees uh, so they can get the planning uh, issues done. So, so we're participating and offloading some of the cost that helps make these projects uh, go. But we need more of it, and uh, we still have a uh, 6,000-person waiting list for some uh, social and affordable housing, and that is uh, unacceptable, and we need to get on top of that. It's going to take time, it's going to take money, and it's going to take partnership with all levels of government. On the other side of the coin, though, uh, last week at uh, at one of the committee meetings, you got some rather troubling news uh, from staff about, uh, well, the cutbacks from the provincial side of things. 
uh, which are going to have a dramatic effect. This was actually the public health meeting, so mm-hmm. you were dealing with health issues. Right. But uh, the fallout from this is going to be significant, especially dealing with some of the issues you've just talked about. Well, you know, and we don't yet know what what uh, what the impacts are going to be because we don't really see a plan in front of us that they've they've actually gravitated to. So they've had some high level uh, you know announcement that they're going to downsize the uh, the public health units and actually merge them. Uh, but we don't know what the impacts are going to be. We don't know what the uh, what the financial impacts are going to be. So we're kind of at logger's head in terms of how to respond to that. I, I had a good chat with uh, Minister Tibolo uh, that was in town at the soccer game uh, this Saturday uh, about some of the perceived library cuts. And I think he clarified for me that they're really not cuts to library funding. They're more cuts to uh, how they transfer books from one community to another, and they're doing it all by trucking. So they're looking at different ways of doing that. Uh, I think this government, this provincial government, is, is trying to find its legs. I, I, I said to him that they're not great communicators. They're really not sharing with us uh, a plan, and, and they're doing it prematurely and causing a lot of consternation, unnecessary consternation, before they actually have formulated a plan that we can actually ne- then understand and appreciate. Uh, they're a legitimate government. We need to work with them, and I want to work with them, but uh, I think they need to be communicating a lot better what their plans are and not do it before they've got something concrete uh, in mind. Back to your calls, the Bill Kelly Show, CHML, with uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. And uh, Tony, you're next on the program. Hi, Tony. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Go ahead. Uh, Mayor, on the uh, uh, erosion on the banks uh, that they want to build up again, Right. I was just wondering... Uh, we know that there's a lot of sludge in the bottom of the uh, bay mm-hmm. because you're taking stuff out of the Randall, uh, dumping it into the Randall Reef, some of it, when you get around to it. Uh, I was just wondering, uh, why couldn't we uh, siphon some of that sludge off the bottom of the bay and uh, deepen the bay so that the water level wouldn't be quite so high and uh, when when there is a rush of water, then there wouldn't be coming up i know there's a boat traffic in there that may may or may not be a problem but uh that kind of stuff and if you wanted to get rid of the some way to dispose of the sledge uh then uh make what uh like a just a roofed area so that uh, they could put it in there and then any fumes that would uh like the roof would be coned if any fumes would get out it would be trapped underneath the uh uh, roof, and then okay. you could uh, burn it off like gas. All right, Tony, I'm going to let you go and let you listen to the mayor's response on the on the air. Thanks so much thank for the you. call today. So, Tony, thank you uh, for that. I mean, uh, you're, you're talking about concepts that have been considered in the past in terms of what uh, we do with the uh, contaminated soils at the bottom of the bay. Uh, we know that in the Randall Reef area, that's the the, the hot spot, the, the coal tar deposit that's there has been uh, studied to, to death, and all kinds of options were considered. One of them was to try and r- remove it altogether and burn it in the incinerator that uh, Stelco had at the time. The, uh, the, the belief at that point was that, that uh, you know, you, you're just taking the problem from a kind of a waterborne problem to an airborne problem because you're, you're now emitting all of that stuff into the atmosphere when you're incinerating that. So uh, the, the theory was to do Randall Reef by uh, creating an enclosed encapsulated uh, sarcophagus, I guess you could say, and then and putting as much of the contaminants in there that are surrounding that, and uh, and then let it let the uh, the over sedimentation look after the rest of the bay. I can tell you that it's a horrendously expensive exercise. The uh, just this Randall Reef portion is upwards of 140 million dollars to do. Uh, it is uh, totally impractical to uh, to try and dredge the the bottom of. Uh, 
of the bay and and then uh, and try and dispose of uh, you know what's in it. So uh, it, it's just not it, it's just not feasible. So what will happen over time is there'll be some sedimentation that will happen, and it will in, in essence encapsulate whatever is on the bottom of the bay beyond the Randall Reef area. Will there be dredging in the future? Uh, likely there will be. Uh, we're not going to be depositing it in Winterburn Basin anymore. That is now a remediation site. So we're remediating those lands to get back to some sort of a healthy status. Uh, so whatever dredging will happen in the future, and that, that it will be necessary for shipping and navigation, will have to be done in a much different way. And, uh, you know, we'll have to find a way of dealing with the, whatever the dredge aid is in some other creative way because we're not going to have disposal cells uh, available anymore beyond uh, Randall Reef. So a uh, complicated issue, Tony, and I, uh, you know, I think I appreciate you turning your mind to that because it's, uh, we need some creativity there. But, uh, you know, what you're suggesting is probably uh, impractical, unfortunately. Uh, and to his point about the the shoreline, uh, actually, to relate it back to a previous phone call, you just got some federal money for that, didn't you? Well, we you? got $30 million for that uh, shoreline remediation, where, you know, specifically along, uh, you know, Lake Ontario portion and the, and the bay, the, the, the walkfront, the waterfront walkfront got uh, considerable damage in, in a storm uh, a few, about a year ago, actually. Uh, that capsized the uh, the breakwater that was there, which is now being replaced uh, under warranty. And uh, we got some remediation dollars to, to, to protect that shoreline from future storms and the Lake Ontario side. So along Confederation Park and some of the public spaces along there, uh, we were also able to uh, to stabilize that and, and prevent future erosion uh, through the $30 million that we got from the federal government. So that's and that's starting, and that work is underway, happening right now. So, so that that was funding that was delivered, uh, you know, in the last month or so. Uh, you know, thirty million, thirty-two million dollars worth of uh, doubling up of the gas tax was delivered uh, at the same time. And uh, you know, there've been a number of projects that they actually have funded, uh, you know, in the in the past. And uh, you know what? That's uh, that's what we expect our our federal government to do is to be a good partner with municipalities. And this particular government has been directly involved with municipalities on a on a one to one basis. And that's been a very very positive initiative. I know that you were talking with the provincial minister of sport at the uh, the game on Saturday. Yep. But uh, any word yet about when the premier is actually going to have an, an official visit here? Uh, I hadn't heard. Uh, so uh, we we continue to invite him. Uh, I expect before too long he uh, before too long he will come. Now he, uh, you know, I'm grateful that he was uh, true to his word when he said uh, in Grimsby uh, on his way past Hamilton that Hamilton's LRT was going to be delivered. And uh, true to their word, uh, Minister Ura came to town and uh, and and said uh, we're on for and we're going to continue to be committed to uh, getting this LRT done in Hamilton. So as long as we're uh, we're getting the uh, positive uh, positive uh, approvals of our, our provincial government. Uh, I'm uh, I'm happy to uh, to wait uh, for for the premier to arrive and uh, obviously hopefully give us some uh, some additional good news. Uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. Uh, I apologize to the calls that we couldn't get to today, but uh, this is why we always encourage you to call earlier in the hour so we can uh, get jammed up at the back. But uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks and do this all over again. You bet. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. Thank Hamilton you. Mayor Fred Eisenberg. Great day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A tragedy, of course, this past Saturday on the the day of past the last day of Passover, and six months after the mass shooting in Pittsburgh synagogue, a shooting at a synagogue outside of San Diego left uh, one woman dead, three others injured, including the rabbi who was uh, overseeing the service at the time. Uh, what do we know? Why does this happen? And why is this always seemingly involving somebody? 
from the alt-right, uh, white supremacists, and uh, that seems to be the indication from what we're getting from authorities. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Bernie Farber, of course, uh, the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Bernie, thank you so much for the time. Uh, thank you for asking me, Bill. Well, I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, one of these days you and I are going to have a conversation about good stuff and happy I stuff, so. uh, but uh, this is this is troubling. Uh, turning on the news on Saturday afternoon, usually kind of a slow day on a Saturday afternoon, just got back from the soccer game in Hamilton, and then I see this. And, uh, yeah. the, you know, there's a little part in the back of your head that says, here we go again. And and you, I, you we already knew, Bernie, I, 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 you best educated guess, what this guy was all about. Yeah. I, we, we didn't even know who he was at this stage, but there's a pattern here, isn't there? Yeah, there is a very sad pattern, and it, it's it's a pattern that actually began, you know, years years ago. Um, and we've seen it develop over a sl- slow period of time. Um, and I, I think you and I talked about this before, but you know, back in the 80s and 90s when we had the advent of groups like the Heritage Front and other neo-Nazi groups, at that time as well, intelligence like CSIS and, and the RCMP took it in hand and uh, you know, were able to deal with it, and then they forgot about it. But the fact is that white supremacy, white nationalism, never goes away. It always bubbles below the surface, looking for a champion. And the sad matter is that it found uh, a a few champions, uh, some better than others, but its biggest champion has been the President of the United States. And this has encouraged them and emboldened them to no end, so that uh, what was really hateful words and sometimes hateful actions like swastikas and synagogues and that type of thing has now turned into violence. And uh, the violence, as we see in the last six months to a year, has increased steadily. And, and right now, the two main subjects of, of neo-Nazis and white nationalists happen to be, interestingly, ironically, and very sadly, Jews and Muslims. We are being killed in our houses of worship. What should be the safest, most peaceful places for us, that is where they're looking to kill us. And it's, it's, it's uh, a very, very frightening time for people. Um, and it's really time for government leaders and intelligence and authorities to stand up. I mean, you know, we have issues around Facebook and, and, and being radicalized online, and that's one of the issues. But the level of violence that we're seeing in North America being perpetrated by these people, we have to find a way to resolve this. Well, and there's a couple of different things I want to talk to you about here, including that study that was in the Globe and Mail uh, about yeah. some of these sites, and we'll get to that in just a second. But I, on my blog this morning, Bernie, I, I mentioned uh, just a lot of variations on the theme of what you were just talking about here. Bad enough and very troubling that these these sites exist and that these people are, are involved in this stuff and they carry out these heinous acts. But just as egregious, though, are the uh, the political leaders who pander to this group, and and there are people who are outright pandering to them. They they gravitate to them for the idea of political support. So let's let's be very clear about this. We're seeing it both in the United States and in Canada. Uh, you will recall, <coughs> excuse me, back less than a year ago, after uh, Premier Ford was elected as Premier of Ontario, uh, there were pictures that appeared with him and uh, white nationalist uh, Faith Goldie, who actually ran for mayor in in Toronto. Um, It took four days for the premier to disavow anti-Semitism and racism. That That should not have been a difficult thing for him. But to this day, he has never renounced 
Faith Goldie, who is one of the clear leaders of the new white nationalist movement. By her own reckoning, she is the propaganda arm of, of, of the movement. And yet the premier of the province of Ontario, the largest province in this country, the most populous pop province uh, by, by, by population, of course, has yet to say one word. We have, we've seen the same thing with the leader of the opposition in, uh, in federal politics, Andrew Scheer, who, who very quite correctly, by the way, spoke at a convoy uh, called United We Roll, group of truckers coming up from Alberta, concerned about pipelines and everything else. But scattered amongst them were many racists, many bigots, anti-Semites, Holocaust deniers. He could have taken the opportunity to have said something, to have called them out. He chose not to. And he actually spoke on the same day that the very same Faith Goldie spoke on the Hill in Ottawa, never calling anything out. This is a very dangerous time, Bill. I don't, you know, I've been in this job for over three decades. And I do not remember a time in recent memory, at least in this country, probably in this continent, where crazed neo-Nazis walk into houses of worship and begin to shoot people. We've certainly seen it with black churches back in the 50s and 60s during the civil rights era, where you know the churches were bombed, etc. We kind of left that. Uh, not to say that racism has gone away, not by any stretch, but now it's a new tact. They're coming in with uh, rifles and with automatic weapons, and they're shooting people at prayer. It's. Uh, I mean, I don't have words to to describe what what this means to. You know, ordinary citizens, Jews and Muslims and others who simply just want to go to church or synagogue or mosque to pray. Well, and again, as I say, the the guy who's under arrest right now, and I don't give his name because that's what they're looking for, is publicity. I'm not even going to talk about his who he is, but uh, he posted, uh, a gentleman of that name, so I'm going to assume it's him, uh, about an hour before he went in and shot the, uh, the synagogue, he posted something basically praising the people that uh, carried out the deadly attack in, in Christchurch and also the one at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue. Uh, which was just a few months before that as well. So there's there's a there's a variation on the same theme that seems to be common through all of these perpetrators. Well, it's actually more than a variation because they pick up each other and feed off each other online. So when we talk about people like them being radicalized online, this is exactly what we mean. The kernels of hate are already there, and they're stoked. They stoke each other, and so they will name each other by name. You remember the person, the the killer in Christchurch actually named the mosque killer in Quebec City, had his name etched into his rifle. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, manifesto of this latest killer, uh, you know, mentioned the Christchurch killer. I mean, they just, they feed off each other, they get support off of each other, and it it's like pulling teeth to get the President of the United States, A, to denounce it. Okay, he finally came on, read a teleprompter, and, and, and denounced anti-Semitism, while at the same time doubling down on his awful, disgusting remarks about Charlottesville, how, how, he, how he handled it just perfectly. I, I mean, I, I just don't get it, Bill. Doesn't he understand that when he does that type of thing, these people suck it in like uh, Popeye spinach? You know, this is what gives them their power. They believe, rightly or wrongly, that the President of the United States is on their side. And they believe that people like Andrew Scheer 
and Doug Ford, if they don't renounce them, even by name, that they are on their side, and that gives them the get-up-and-go that they need to commit some of the most heinous acts that we've seen in the latter part of, of, the, uh, of the 21st century now. Well, and the landing spot for an awful lot of these types, uh, in this country anyways, is uh, something called Discord, which is an app that they say is meant for gamers, but it's yeah. actually very popular with the far right. And, and by the way, I hate to actually even use that, that characterization, because some people will try to conflate conservatism with this. These are not conservatives. Uh, this no, is, this no, is all no, no. right. We're, this we're, is... We're, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about racist bigots, uh, white supremacists, white nationalists, these are not conservatives, not, not by any stretch. And that is why leaders of the conservative movement, leaders of, of, of the Liberal Party, leaders of the NDP, all of them have to speak out uh, in unison, together. Put aside your politics for now. We have a crisis on our hands on, in this, in, you know, on this continent, and we have to work together as political leaders, as faith leaders. I mean, it's been, what, 24, almost 48 hours since the shooting in, in uh, California, has there been a, uh, a press conference called by all the faith leaders in the United States to condemn this? Have we heard anything? People just remain silent. We cannot be silent. You know, silence is acquiescence. You know, we have to stand always with the, victi- with the victims against the victimizers. That's what we must do, and we're not doing it. In uh, 2014, uh, CSIS, the Canadian spy agency, of course, uh, published a report and, and essentially, at that time, Bernie, they they indicated that, that that white supremacism was 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 not a big deal here. That it was there, but it was just a small little clique. Uh, in in just a couple of short years, look at how this has blown. Uh, it's so, so big and so large, and and seems to be consuming so much oxygen right now. You know, Bill, uh, the, the the sad fact of the matter is that in 2014, CSIS got it wrong. Uh, they didn't have the right people at the right place. And they, by their own admission, they weren't paying a lot of attention to, to white nationalism. They were, they were more concerned, and understandably so, you know, with uh, so-called Islamic terrorism, with ISIS and Daesh and what was going on. Uh, it was consuming a lot of our time and a lot of our concern. Meanwhile, they were growing underground. They were speaking to each other. They were creating cliques online. They were radicalizing online. Uh, they just missed the boat. Um, and it, it really took them three or four years to now finally admit that, oh, yeah, you know, uh, we were going to have to do something. But now they're way behind. They're going to have to play catch-up. Um, and as a matter of fact, that with, you know, with the work that we do at the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, we're now working very closely, both with police and, and, and intelligence services, sharing information, uh, sharing databases. Um, but they should have had this up and going all the time. These are things that never go away. Sadly, Hatred is always with us. We have to find ways to control it, and there are ways to do it. We just have to, you know, find the best kind of formula to make sure that we do the right thing. Well, uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's no one solution to this, but uh, I guess there's going to have to be a series of things done. Uh, and what seems to be a trend right now, and I hope it catches on with others, is, is making the servers themselves, the platforms yeah. themselves, responsible for content. And I know there's a New Zealand law that was passed just after what happened in Christchurch. Uh, that said if they don't do that and if they can't control that, it's the server and the platform yeah. that's going to be fined and charged, not just the person who's, who's posting. And, you know, this may be the only way to, to gain some level of control. I, I mean, I have to give some credit to Facebook where, you know, they have taken some, uh, they're doing some work in trying to resolve this. They've actually put together an external um, group, that, that, uh, an external advisory group, 
Um, I'm going to be meeting with Facebook people in Ottawa next week, around May the 8th. Um, there's going to be other meetings like that. But the bottom line is there are, you know, Facebook blocks them and finds a way to deal with the algorithms, whatever they do. They'll pop up someplace else, right? They're like whack-a-moles. You, you get one down and another three pop up. And, and that's why I believe, sincerely, right now, given the fact that we're talking about murder, loss of life, uh, that uh, that ISPs have to stand up and be counted, that, the, that those that run these uh, service providers have to be part of the solution. And if they're not going to be part of the solution, then government must step in and create laws, as you quite rightly say, as we see in New Zealand, happening also in Australia, being discussed in, in uh, the UK. It has to be discussed here in Canada that there will be not just fines, but potentially these people can end up in jail if they can't control their own services. Their own services, and if they can't, then they should take them offline, because uh, you know one body, one murder uh, out of hate because of hate is to me one murder too many. It does not have to happen, and it does not have to be radicalized on servers that we can deal with. I mean. If there's one thing that we know from from all of these incidents, sadly, it's that these sorts of sites and, and the contributions that are being made onto these sorts of sites, that's what gives these people oxygen. That's what gives them, uh, emboldens them, I guess. Well, ab- ab- absolutely true. And, and, you know, Facebook figured that out the hard way. They're doing some work on it. Uh, Twitter has remained absolutely silent. Um, they ha- they, uh, by the way, interestingly, of course, they all have their own internal regulations, which they never meet. You know, they never deal with them. I can tell you of complaints that we've made at Canadian Anti-Hate Network to Twitter and to other uh, Internet service providers that just, you know, n- never see the, the, the light of day. So, you know, these, these, these have to be serious and governments have to be serious because here's my view, and it's a sad view, but once you open this dark door where people walk into places of worship, it is the same dark door of, of people walking into public schools and high schools and starting to shoot, it never closes. In the United States, they have done nothing in in terms of regulating firearms. At least we have firearms regulated here, and we need to take that next step to provide even more of a safety net for uh, for decent citizens, and that is ensure that groups like Facebook and other service providers don't either advertently or inadvertently allow their service to be used by hate-mongers to promote violence, because that's exactly what's happening right now as we speak. Well, and I know that some politicians are reticent to get involved in this uh, because of the free speech element to this. And, and, and again, they're confusing this. This is a public safety issue. It, it is It is a public safety issue. By the way, I understand those that say it's a free speech issue. Um, but I've always created and, and felt that there is a significant difference. And, and we've found that uh, that kind of law, that legal line in law, to separate hate speech from free speech, and it's it's a high bar to cross. But some of the stuff that I'm seeing on um, on Facebook, certainly some of the responses you see on on people's posts and that kind of thing, are just disgusting. Things that people would never say to your face, but you know they they think that the anonymity of of, uh, of groups like this uh, gives them cover. The fact is, this also provides oxygen to the haters. These may not be the people who are going to go out and buy guns and do shooting, but they are the ones that feed the violence and feed those that will perpetrate the violence. We've got to also find ways to be nicer to each other. You know, there used to be a time where, you know, being kind and being polite and doing deeds of loving kindness with your neighbors used to be a thing. And, you know, what's replaced it is being hateful to your neighbor. That's now the thing. 
we've got to find ways to deal with all of this, and we're, we're, we've not done a terribly good job. No, and sadly, that's this is evidence of, of what we see as a result of that. Uh, you're right. I mean, you know, there's there's a there's an idea of, of having differences, but now it's uh, you can't just disagree with somebody. You have to hate them because they have a contrary opinion, and it's frustrating. And you have to print it in bold capital letters, and uh, you know you have to find uh, ways to to disagree with violent language. Um, it's uh, and, and and you know, hate your neighbor seems to be really the the, the mantra that we're that we're hearing today. Conferences on on you know uh, how Muslims are taking over Canada and uh, I mean it it is outrageous and I've I've seen them I've written about them and any time I write about these things the amount of uh, hate mail that I get is is almost overwhelming uh, it, it it's the kind of thing that you know people like us and I'm assuming Bill you as well you you will receive messages after oh, yeah. just having me on the air talking about this because I'm a bit of a bellwether for these people. But, you know, we, we, we have to continue to ring this bell. We have to make it not a good thing to be a, a, a hateful, spiteful person. Uh, because from hate and spite comes the next step, and that, you know, that's physical violence. It is. Bernie, thanks as always for the time today. We'll stay in touch. Thanks, Bill. Have a good day. Bernie Farber, of course, from the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.